There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a history of Europe. Key Battles podcast. The Battle of Rio Salado, otherwise known as the Battle of Tarifa, of the year 1340. Part 1 of 3. In the mid-13th century, Spanish Christian armies conquered large swathes of Al-Andalus, that is, Muslim-controlled southern Spain. By 1248, only a small region in the south of the peninsula, the Kingdom of Granada, remained in Muslim hands. Granada survived for nearly two and a half centuries further until 1492. Why did it take so long to conquer the last part of the peninsula? Also, why did the Christians not continue their crusade across the Straits of Gibraltar and occupy North Africa? And why did the North Africans not retake Al-Andalus? This podcast will try to answer these questions. Before continuing, I'd just like to say that it might be useful to first listen, if you haven't already done so, to previous episodes on the fall of Toledo, 1085, and the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, 1212, to give a bit more background on medieval Spain. Otherwise, continue listening. This set of episodes is self-contained and can be listened to on its own. For the Muslim Kingdom of Granada, there were two principal reasons for its survival. Firstly, the mountainous terrain of the region, and secondly, the skillful diplomacy of its leaders against their more powerful neighbours, Castile to the north and the Marinid dynasty of Morocco to the south. The key strategic point in this three-way conflict were the Straits of Gibraltar. All sides recognised the strategic importance of, in particular, the ports of Tarifa, Gibraltar and Algeciras, all three long used by invaders from the African continent as a gateway into Spain. This is the story of the conflict for control of this region between the time of the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212 and the Battle of Rio Salado in 1340. The outcome would help determine the destinies of both southern Spain and North Africa. In December 1230, Fernando III, already King of Castile for some dozen years, succeeded also to the throne of the Kingdom of Leon, and so united the two lands. Over many generations, Castile and Leon had at times been united before, but more often had been bitter rivals. But at least temporarily, the nobles put their quarrels behind them, and the two kingdoms would never separate again. 
Fernando was a fortunate king to rule in a period of relative peace and prosperity. Since the decisive victory over an Almohad army at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, the Christians enjoyed supremacy in the peninsula over their Muslim rivals. Never again would the armies of Islam seriously threaten that position. Castile's only competitor for supremacy in Spain was the fellow Christian kingdom of Aragon, with whom she was presently at peace. For twelve years after Las Navas de Tolosa, a series of truces kept Castile and the Almohad dominions of Al-Andalus more or less at peace. The Almohads, based in their capital, Marrakesh, never fully recovered from the blow suffered at the battle. After the uneventful reign of Caliph Abu Yaqub Yusuf, reigned 1213-1224, the Almohad Empire suffered a series of conspiracies and rebellions, including in Al-Andalus. The native Muslims in Spain had always resented rule by Africans and only tolerated them in return for protection against the advance of the Christians. Once the Almohads were no longer able to provide such defence, there was no reason to put up with their rule any longer. A major uprising was led by an individual named Ibn Hud, said to belong to the lineage of the kings of Zaragoza. After a successful campaign against the Almohads between 1228 and 1229, Ibn Hud was acknowledged as ruler of several cities, including Murcia, Almeria, Granada, Cordova and Seville. Soon after, though, a local rival appeared to threaten him and bring about his downfall. Ibn al-Amar, founder of the Nazrid dynasty and the Kingdom of Granada, rose in revolt against Ibn Hud in 1232 and was soon acclaimed as leader by the people of Jaén, Carmona and Cordova. The Christian princes were quick to take advantage of the disunity of the Muslims. Fernando III, assisted by bishops, barons, military orders and militias of the towns, carried out an offensive along a broad front. By 1235, he and his vassal had taken several towns and were advancing closer to Cordova and Seville. In early 1236, a large Castilian army assembled outside the walls to besiege the former capital of the once mighty Umayyad Caliphate of Spain. Ibn Hud came to relieve the city, but lacking the confidence to defeat the Christians, decided he had no choice but to return to Seville, and so left Cordova to its fate. On the onset of spring, the besiegers destroyed the fields and tightened the siege, and finally, on the 29th of June, 1236, the city capitulated and fell into Christian hands. Fernando III allowed the inhabitants to leave, taking with them whatever they could carry, but if they wished to remain, they were free to continue the practice of their religion. The great mosque, however, with its labyrinth of columns and arches dating back to the first Umayyads in Spain, was consecrated as a cathedral. The king ordered also the recovery and the restoration of the bells of the Church of Santiago, which had been taken all the way back in 10th century by the Moorish ruler Almanzor and hung in the mosque ever since. The retrieval was highly symbolic for highlighting the shift of power which had occurred in favour of the Christians since the time of Almanzor. 
the conquest of Cordova opened the whole valley of the Guadalquivir to Fernando III. In the next few years, many towns and fortresses submitted to him. Ibn Hud, now increasingly unpopular after a series of defeats against the Christians, was murdered in January 1238 by one of his lieutenants. Ibn al-Amar derived the immediate profit from his rival's death. Proclaimed as king of Malaga and Almeria, he established his chief seat at Granada, where he began the fortifications which eventually became the palace of the Alhambra. The city of Granada was of relatively a recent origin, having been founded in the 11th century by a local baron and had never before played an important role in the political life of Al-Andalus. In the same period, the King of Portugal was also gaining territory in the southwest corner of the peninsula, and in the east, King Jaime I of Aragon, having conquered the island of Mallorca, was in the process of subjugating the Muslim kingdom of Valencia. An important watershed in the history of Aragon and Catalonia is the Treaty of Corbeil, signed in May 1258. Jaime renounced his claims to French territories, and in return, King Louis IX of France renounced his rights to the frontier territories that had once constituted the Spanish March, including Barcelona and Girona. From then on, Aragonese efforts at expansion were now directed towards the Mediterranean rather than southern France. Thus, a political border was established that still persists today between France and Spain. As for the one other Christian kingdom on the peninsula, Navarra, in 1234 it passed into the hands of Thibault, or Theobald I of Champagne, and thereafter its fortunes were more closely tied to France than to the rest of Spain. In the 1240s, Fernando III wrenched yet more territory from Muslim control. One by one, conquered cities were either merged into the territory of Castile or reduced to vassalage. In 1245, the strategic city of Jaén fell to Castile after a long siege. Ibn al-Amar, fearful of further Castilian expansion, agreed to become a vassal of Fernando III, to pay an annual tribute and to assist against his enemies. This gave al-Amar the vital breathing space he needed to build up Granada's defensive network and consolidate his position against internal rivals. For Fernando III, the next logical step was the conquest of Seville. It was the most opulent city of Al-Andalus, and also a seaport with access to both the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. At the time, Castile's only contact with the sea was along the Bay of Biscay in the north. With the Almohads of North Africa preoccupied fighting the rival Hafsid dynasty, and Al-Amar, the chief Muslim prince in Al-Andalus, as Fernando's vassal, Seville stood in isolation from the rest of the Muslim world. In July 1247, the Castilians advanced to the outskirts of the city and established a siege. Finding that it was impossible to hit the city so long as the mouth of the Guadalquivir was held by the Moorish fleet, Fernando had a number of ships built in the Bay of Biscay and sent round to help the blockade. 
It is the first mention in history of the Castilian navy, which later became central to Spain's great wealth and power in the 16th century. Without hope of relief, the defenders capitulated on the 23rd of November, 1248. By the terms of the surrender, the citizens who decided to leave were given a month to settle their affairs and provided safe conduct to Careth, or if they chose, Theuta, on the North African coast. Numerous towns in the surrounding area soon after recognised Fernando as their sovereign. The conquest of Seville was one of great importance, not only because of its intrinsic worth as a rich and popular city, but because it gave the Kingdom of Castile, for the first time, a secure port and harbour for their ships in the south. Fernando III died in May 1252, leaving a legacy considered worthy enough in 1671 by Pope Clement X to merit his canonisation. At the end of his life, he was planning an invasion of North Africa, hoping to safeguard his kingdom against the possibility of a new Muslim invasion from that region. The plans were put on ice by his son and successor, Alfonso X, reigned 1252 to 1284, known to history as El Sabio, the wise or learned. Aged 30, at the time of his accession to the throne, the new king occupied himself with the colonisation of Seville and the surrounding territory, distributing houses, lands, vineyards, olive groves and the like to settlers who came from throughout Spain. During much of his reign, Alfonso X's greatest preoccupation was his desire to win the crown of the Holy Roman Empire. Ever since the papal deposition of Emperor Frederick II, in 1245, civil war between papalists and imperialists, or the Guelphs and Ghibellines, raged in both Germany and Italy. As a grandson of Frederick Barbarossa, Alfonso belonged to the Hohenstaufen family, and so hoped to find substantial support for his candidacy. Despite the expenditure of much time and resources to bolster his claims, after a long period without a recognised emperor, the title was offered to Rudolf I, the first Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor, in 1273. The events demonstrated Spain's gradual incorporation into the mainstream of Western European politics, a process which would continue in later centuries. Aside from Alfonso's diversions into European politics, the main reason for a postponement of invasions into Granada or North Africa was lack of manpower. The rapidity of the recent reconquest was such that there were not enough Christians to colonise the recently conquered areas. As for the Muslims, no serious attempt was made to convert them or to expel them, but their loyalty was never guaranteed. In some ways it was to the advantage of Castile not to occupy Granada. The Muslim kingdom provided tributes to fill royal coffers and would have been difficult to populate if conquered. Also it became home to large numbers of Muslims who decided that they did not wish to remain in Christian conquered land. It was better for them, at least for now, to live in Granada than cause unrest in Castile. It is worth noting the variety of social structures that existed in this period around Spain. 
Gabriel Jackson, in his book The Making of Medieval Spain, describes how in northern Castile lay the well-watered, forested provinces of Galicia and the Cantabrican Mountains. Here, farmers, woodmen and fishermen lived in relatively isolated communities. The main contacts of the outside were via the pilgrims who came to visit Santiago de Compostela and through the trading of wool to England and Flanders. On the southern slopes of the Cantabrican mountains and across the meseta of Leon and Old Castile existed a society dominated by farmers and herdsmen. The towns there were relatively small and largely self-governing. To encourage their repopulation, the kings had granted their citizens rights under a set of laws called fueros. The local economy was boosted in this period by the development of annual trade fairs in each town. Further south, in the provinces of Toledo, Badajoz and La Mancha, the military orders dominated with their immense estates devoted to the raising of cattle or sheep. Finally, in the southernmost regions of Castile, in order to hold the newly gained lands, immense estates were ceded in full ownership to the nobility and to the military orders who had collaborated in the reconquest. These grants became the basis of the latifundia, or great landed estates, which dominated that part of Spain for centuries afterwards. Wide contrasts also existed within the Kingdom of Aragon. The Pyrenean valleys of Upper Aragon and the mountainous interior of Catalonia were occupied by small traditional farm holdings. Further south was a more mixed population, with farms often owned by Christians, but worked on by a technically skilled Muslim population, who had irrigated and cultivated the land for centuries. Throughout the Middle Ages there continued to live a much higher proportion of Muslims, both farmers and city dwellers, than in Castile. Meanwhile, Barcelona, and to a lesser degree, Tortosa, developed steadily as commercial centres. Catalan shipping rivaled that of the Italian cities and was increasingly important in the trade with North African ports. The Kingdom of Granada was quite densely populated with many Muslims who had lived in areas conquered by Christians but could not bear to live under the new rulers. Donald McGillivray, in his book Granada, the seizure of the Sultanate, writes about the great diversity of climate within the kingdom, ranging from subtropical on the coast in the summer to near Arctic in the Sierra Nevada in winter, and the abundant resources of the region. The local population, skilled as they were in agriculture, especially in irrigation and terracing of hillsides, were self-sufficient. Many fruits were grown, especially citrus fruits and grapes, but also higher up, cherries, apples, pears, and also pomegranates, from which Granada is believed to have derived its name. Cereals, wheat, barley, and millet were cultivated intensely on the inland plains, and cane sugar, introduced by the Arabs, were grown in a hot and humid coastline east of Malaga. The long coastline provided abundant supplies of fish, and the slopes of the Sierra Nevada excellent pasture for cattle and sheep. In addition to food and goods for local consumption, Granada exported many high-value products. These included figs, raisins, sweet wines and ceramics, 
but by far the most lucrative export was silk. Mulberry plantations were situated in the hills between the Sierra Nevada and the sea. From there, raw silk was sent to spinners in Granada and Almeria, and then shipped to weavers in Florence, Genoa and Lucca. McGilvray argues that the greatest legacy of the Nazareth dynasty of Granada is their architecture. At first they were heavily influenced by the traditions of North Africa and the Middle East, but by the mid-14th century they developed their own style. The Nazareth style was light and delicate, with extensive use of carved stucco and ceramics on the facades of buildings, seen at its finest in the royal palaces of the Alhambra and Generalife. You can see some examples on the Facebook page for the podcast. As a fundraising exercise for the podcast, I have set up a page at the website called www.patreon.com. That's spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. There I have recently posted extra bonus episodes on the history of the Baltic region and the Northern Crusades between the soldiers of Latin Christendom, the pagans of Northeastern Europe and the Orthodox Russians. These are available to all those who are generous enough to pledge at least $3 a month to help fund a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. A huge thanks to all those who have already signed up. As ever, feel free to contact me either on the Facebook page or the blog www.historyeurope.net, on Twitter at History Europe KB, letters KB, or write directly to carl at historyeurope.net. In addition, it would be great if you could find a few moments to give the podcast a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a great week. And until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.